Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Matt Faircloth, who is the co-founder and president of the DeRosa Group, a real estate investment company that specializes in buying and renovating dilapidated properties. Matt and his wife, Liz, started investing in real estate in 2004 with a $30,000 loan. DeRosa owns and controls a diverse portfolio consisting of residential and commercial assets throughout the East Coast and has completed more than $30 million in real estate transactions involving private capital. Matt and Liz are active contributors to the Bigger Pockets community and parents to two adorable kids. So welcome to the show, Matt. How are you doing today? I am awesome, Scott. Thank you for having me here, and I'm really excited to uh, get into a great conversation with you today. I'm so excited. Uh, just book just came out, Raising Private Capital, published by Bigger Pockets. Uh, amazing book, by the way. So much content and so much experience. I uh, absolutely loved it. It was well written. Each chapter, you know, blew me away. So awesome job writing it. I know it took probably took a lot of time. More than I thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More than I thought it was going to when I said yes to writing a book. I didn't realize they just came to me and said, hey, you want to write a book? And I said, yeah, I want to write a book. How hard could that be? It's yep. it's challenging. Um you know, for, for the self-discipline and getting beyond writer's block and, um, and, and, that. and, uh, you know, I, I knew what, I knew what I wanted to talk about, but, uh, getting it out of my head and onto a piece of paper to the point where it made sense and that where the ideas flowed together, um, was the, was the challenge, but, but it was, it was all in all looking back on it. It was fun and it was very rewarding. Yeah. So what kind of a success did you, did you, you know, pick a day of the week and said, Hey, listen, I got to write from like eight to 4 PM and, and that's what it's going to be. Well, it took a lot of having my spouse's enrollment in this thing. And, and I think that this is true of all real estate um, or maybe even just entrepreneurship is that it, it just for the sacrifices you have to take for this business, you have to have your spouse enrolled in this. And so my wife was very enrolled in me writing this book. And so she was like my helper. Um, so she was the foot up my butt to get me to the Starbucks um, or to get me to go to the office or to get me to stay after hours or whatever. <clears throat> and um, there were a few weekends that she would just go away with the kids. And I would just stay home from like Friday until Sunday and just write and just knock out like two or three chapters at once. And, and so it, it took that discipline. Um, it, it took a lot of uh, um, just setting aside regular time um, in, in bigger chunks. The, the thing is, what didn't work for me was setting aside like a half an hour and doing a little bit of writing. Some authors can do that. For me, I need to take time to get the juices flowing and to acknowledge and get beyond the writer's block. And this is like for anybody else looking to write a book. What worked for me was to sit there for the first half hour and acknowledge there's going to be writer's block and to kind of fight the, I would fight writing. And mm -hmm. so I would try and write ideas wouldn't come, go check my email, fight, try and write again, fight writing, not happening, play a game of checkers on my phone. Um, <laughs> you know, and just acknowledge the procrastination and get myself through it. And then, beyond that half hour, like the divine inspiration would hit me, and my fingers would all of a sudden limber up. And um, I hate to say, for those that haven't done this, it's just or for having really gotten their head into something they don't, that it's, it's hard to relate to. But once I got in into the zone and plugged in and started writing, and the words started coming, I forget what time it was. Um, I, I, you know, I just all of a sudden an hour would be gone and I'd be, oh man, I just wrote like 10 pages. Look at that. Um, and, uh, and I, I also wouldn't, wasn't be sure. I wasn't sure what the conversation was going to look like. I would start writing about a thing like, you know, I'm going to talk about this. And then I would go off on a tangent. So there's certain sections of the book 
that I what I didn't know were going to be in there um, mm-hmm. because I would mention a thing and I'm like, I got to talk about that. And so, okay, let's let's hop down the rabbit hole. It, it feels like the yeah. right thing to do. And so off we go. Um, and uh, my wife would be like, how'd you do today? I'm like, oh, that's great, honey. I'm still done. I'm almost done chapter two. And she's like, baby, you were just started chapter two today. You were supposed to be finished chapter two. I'm like, yeah, honey, I know, but you got to understand. <laughs> Like we went, yeah. we went a whole nother place that I didn't know chapter two was going to go. It was awesome. And, and she would read it. I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. I didn't know you were going to do that. And I was like, I didn't know I was going to do that either. It started <laughs> to come out of me. Um, and so those moments were extremely rewarding, but it took this getting beyond the procrastination and getting beyond the writer's block to get into those moments. And there's no like silver bullet of getting through those things. I just had, I had, I just found I had to wait them out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, if I just, you know, do 10 push-ups, uh, it'll get my blood flowing and all the writer's block will go away. Now I have to just sit. I have to wait through it. I have to wait for the show to start. And then the show starts and off we go, you know? Yeah. No, I, I love that's a good tip. That's a little slice. That's a little slice of what it was like to write. Yep. And for anybody listening, you know, either, you know, writing a new blog post or reading a book, same thing. It's, I feel like I have to get in that zone too of, you know, getting past all the distractions and things like that. So, mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. And a lot of people, a lot of people are like, I just can't write because they, they don't wait it out. They don't let the yeah. frustrations happen and let the distractions happen. But you keep thinking about it and you keep thinking, like, yeah, I got to write something. Ah, what am I going to write? I don't know. What the hell? Let me just get back to this guy on my email real quick. So you do that and then you keep thinking about the book while you're doing it. And maybe it spurs an idea or maybe something comes up about a conversation you had yesterday or whatever. And a lot of times, because I'm in the business, a lot of things I talk about are just things that just happened the other day. Like, you know, I just talked to that guy about the time that he did a loan agreement with a private lender of his. So I'm going to talk about that, you know. And, and so I would transpose a lot of things that have happened in day-to-day life. And these, I needed to get take a moment to get still. That's, I guess it's really what's happening is I'm just taking, I'm getting my vibrational energy down and down and down to the point where I can really, you know, uh, plug it, get plugged in and write. So, yeah, it's great journey. Yeah, I love that. Letting it happen to you and getting past mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump right into the book. So uh, I love you know the beginning with the introduction uh, of private capital in chapter one. So there are numerous definitions and how do you define private capital? How do I define private capital? Yeah. Um. So I define it as um, like really it's it's good. I'll go big macro, right? It, it is the the activity of like kind of raising private capital. And, and just in, injecting it is is the activity or the or the you know product of putting other people's wealth to work um, in in your business and and it is um, it, it is that that developing that trusting relationship that they're willing to take their wealth and and entrust you with it and, and allow you to become the custodian of their wealth um, that's that that's what I uh, you know it's it is a um, can be a very elegant strategic alliance and an extremely trusting, um, you know, I hate to use this word, but it's just true intimate relationship that you have with your investors of them being willing to, you know, kind of be vulnerable and allow, allow you to control a bit of their wealth so that they can, you know, achieve their financial goals while you build your business. So, um, that is the complete Matt Faircloth version definition of it. And what I just came up with on the fly. So thank you. Well said. <laughs> Um, yeah. so, so when it comes to the use of private capital, so what's the difference between, you know, debt and equity? Sure. So 
uh, yeah, private capital is just putting people's money to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but debt is when I borrow their money and I owe and and I pay them an interest rate, which my definition definition of interest is the fee I pay someone for the use of their money. You know, so I have to pay them a fee because I'm putting their money to work somewhere. So I have to pay them interest. That's that's you know what what that is. Um, and debt is in real estate. It's collateralized debt, meaning it's it's, it's a collateralized loan, meaning I'm giving them a lean on a property or something that they could come and take if I don't pay the loan back. Um, that's what collateral is. People don't, a lot of some investors don't want to face that, but it's true that if you don't pay that loan back, they will come and they have the right to come and take whatever that thing is that they have a lien on. Um, and, uh, and that, so that's, um, that's debt. It is a typically fixed income type of thing. It's a fixed monthly payment or a fixed interest rate. If you're not going to make monthly payments, whatever it is. Um, and then equity, is on the other side of it. Equity is direct ownership. It is it, as as opposed to them loan, you know, giving you money with a fee attached to it. They are coming alongside you and taking ownership of the property with you. They they are um they, they are part owner. They are partners. They they own a chunk of the dirt and the sticks and the bricks alongside you. Um, that's uh that that's what equity is. Um, and they, they have a rights and benefits of the uptick on the property or they have a rights and of the loss on the property. If it goes down in value, that's theirs. If it goes up in value, that's theirs too. Um, so that's, that is the uh, definition of the two. Great. Now, uh, what are some of the benefits and risks associated with each? And I know that could probably go on for the whole show, but um, just sure, a few can... quick tips. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, the benefit of debt to the investor, to the debt, and in the book I talk about the deal provider, cash provider, right? Mm-hmm. So the benefit of debt to the deal provider, the person that's producing the, the deal and for this other person to invest in, um, is that it's a fixed interest rate. So it's not like if you win big on the deal, you're not going to have to cut the investor a bigger part of that. You have to pay them their 8 9 10% interest, and that's it. If, um, if uh, the, the downside of risk of debt is that if the property goes way, if the, if the deal goes um, south and has a bad, you know, has a bad experience or it's a bad deal, you still have to pay that interest rate. Um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword. So that's the benefits and risk of debt. Um, the benefits and risk of equity, um, is, uh, I mean, equity, the biggest, again, you, I could say the same thing for equity and call them the same thing. This is true. But on top of that with equity, um, is that, uh, you know, there's certain, level of promises that you're telling people you're going to do there's certain like well i think it's going to perform around here and there's let there's more pressure on the deal provider to make the property perform at a certain level so you can meet expectations of your investors um whereas for a debt it is what it is you told me you're going to get to make percent so you got to get make percent is what it is but for a equity investor you may say i think this project's going to perform around 15 percent. this is what i think and so you're kind of laying your you know what on the line there, saying this is what i think and, and, and you better be able to meet those numbers or you're going to be looked at as if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and there's a certain reputation and um, level of integrity and, um, you know, expectation that investors have for you to for you to meet those performances. So great. Now, you speak about the unique factors of private capital and how it has three characteristics that make it unique. So negotiability, win win and the source of money. So how do each of these make private capital unique? Sure. Well, um, the negotiability, like if I approach a bank, mm-hmm. and I'm not private capital, a bank is not private capital, our money lender is not private capital, um, a credit card is not private capital, all these things are not. Me approaching someone individually is private capital, and negotiability is the first one, then meaning saying like, if I'm talking to my Uncle Charlie and say, hey, Uncle Charlie, listen, I want to borrow money at 
from you at 7% and I'm going to give you collateral on the property. Uncle Charlie says, you know, um, uh, Scott, I, I, you're great. I like what you're doing, but I need to get nine on my money, 9%. And you say, Uncle Charlie, let's meet in the middle and do it for eight. Um, and they, you know, that's negotiability. That's, but a bank is not going to do that. <laughs> you know, they, they may flex like this tiny little bit much or like, oh, we'll waive the application fee or something completely minor. Um, but that's not true negotiability. Um, in private capital, pretty much everything's negotiable, you know, um, aside from things that are just defined by the law. Outside of just legal matters, anything in private capital is negotiable, you know, and you can discuss with the individual. And that's what's great is it's an individual putting their money to work in your business. So you can discuss whatever you want. Um, that's negotiability. Um, win win. Um, and this is somewhat esoteric, but what I mean by that is part of the deal provider's job is to get to understand the cash provider, the other side of the transaction's goals what their financial goals are. What do you want? What does wealth building look like? Are you investing capital to make money to put your daughter into college? Are you looking to build your retirement pool? Are you looking to you know, build up a pool of capital so that you can go buy a new house? What are you looking to do? Um, and so win-win means addressing deals from a perspective and putting together parameters that meet the cash provider's goals while they meet yours too. Because it doesn't matter what a bank or hard money lender's goals are because they're, they're, they're because they're inflexible about it. You can't adjust things to meet their financial goals. Um, but what's great about working with an individual is you can discuss goals, where they want to go, where you want to go. Um, and you can put together something that hopefully meets uh, both persons' uh, desires, what they're looking for, what they're looking for for themselves. So that's win-win. Um, the, the source of money, it, what makes this thing unique, is you can go a couple of different places. And in the book, I talk about um, the three major sources of private capital are um, a self-directed IRA, so a retirement account, you know, um, the, the real estate, so they can put a lien on their real estate and have that lien um, be a home equity line of credit. They can put the equity in their real estate to work in your business. And the book talks all about how to do that. Um, <clears throat> or they can just put straight cash. Uh, to work. So what, what really the source of money um, means is that investors have, cash providers have several different ways that they can work with you. Um, they, and what's great is they might not even know it. And so part of the deal provider's job is to educate them mm -hmm. on, hey, you might not even realize it, but you can put that half a million bucks you got sitting there in your retirement account, you know, you can put it to work in real estate. Did you know that? And I'll show you how to do it. So um, that, that's that, that's what those mean. Yeah, I love that. And the, the thing that screams to me the most is flexibility and having that mm -hmm. maneuverability that you don't have with other rigid lenders. So, yeah. Yeah. In chapter two, so let's talk about Mr. Fairclaw's four prerequisites to raising private capital. So, number one, you have getting educated, which I love. Uh, what do you recommend when it comes to education? I know you love it, man. You're reading a book a week over there. <laughs> you can, you're like, you know, captain educated, you know? Yes, sir. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I, I digress. So, you know, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and come to private capital, uh, you know, education. Obviously, your book is a great place to start because I, I feel like it gives you a beautiful outline and, and great action steps to start. So, you know, besides reading, is there any other type of education that you would recommend? 
Yeah, so I mean, I I would not be remiss if I didn't at least at this point mention BiggerPockets.com. Um, BiggerPockets is is uh, the publisher of the book, but uh, but uh, you know that's why I, would, I should do that. But also, um, BiggerPockets is where I got started, and it's where I, and that's not where I got started in my business, but it's where I got started in being a voice of real estate investing to a, a larger community and writing articles and um, shooting videos and being you know being on podcasts and stuff like that. So I think that consuming. The information on bigger pockets. So why I love bigger pockets as a source of education is it is real estate investing education produced by real estate investors. It's not produced by third party, you know, run to the back of the room people or whatever. I mean, I'm running a business. I didn't write the book so I could sell books. I wrote the book so I could share some things I've learned in my active, still ongoing real estate company. Um, and 99.99999% of the people that produce content for biggerpockets.com are active real estate investors. And so I think that I would recommend that. Um, I would also consider going to local real estate, like RIA clubs in your local market, but just take it with a grain of salt because a lot of times they'll bring in the run to the back of the room. We only got five left. Um, <laughs> pay me $10,000 and I'll whisper the secret of real estate in your ear and stuff like that. Um, they, they bring in those guys sometimes. So just take it with a grain of salt when they bring those people in and just try and get connected to local people that are actually in the business. So those are uh, two, I think, great ways to get connected to get educated yeah awesome number two you have developing a track record so what are some good ways to develop a track record in the beginning of your real estate investing career well i mean obviously the easiest way to do it is just you know get out there and do a deal with your own money right so if you don't have your own money um and if you can't do that if you don't have good credit your own money or whatever uh, you can consider um, in, in the book we talk more about you know other activities becoming a realtor get your real estate license um, you can become a wholesaler uh, you could um, people don't think about this, but it's true. Becoming a property a property manager for someone else's real estate portfolio will teach you all of the ins and outs of landlording. You'll probably get to meet real estate attorneys and other landlords. Um, you know, get your head bashed in by tenants a few times and stuff like that. Um, and have a tenant to, you know run circles around you and everything like that. And the tenants tend to thicken up your skin, so um, you get to do all that hands-on activity to develop a track record. Um, and the last one that people never talk about, but it's absolute great hands-on experience, is becoming a project manager for an active flipper. So Finding a flipper in your local area and saying, hey, I've got a lot of time on my hands. And if you don't have money, I'm most likely you've got some time. Um, and, uh, and that you can go and spend your time uh, shooting pictures of their flips and meeting contractors over there, running to Home Depot for them and stuff like that. And being a set of legs and then using that flip or that property you're managing or the property you sold as a realtor or whatever as a feather in your cap as part of your track record that you can eventually present to private money folks that want to work with you. Great tips. Um, number three, taking a personal inventory. So what areas do you recommend we assess to gain clarity in our lives? Sure. I, I think at the end of the day, we all you know, have our God-given gifts and, and our skills and our talents and you know, what we're great at. So uh, taking personal inventory is really looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, what am I great? Because I firmly believe this. And this isn't like you know, hokey stuff or whatever. I firmly believe that everybody's got something that they're great at. And I think that part of the journey of life is figuring out what that is. And then, like, turn up the heat on it as hard as you can, you know. Um, apparently, you're great at reading books, so, you know, keep that up. Um, but uh, but, but get, keep great, get great at something or find out what you are great at naturally and then and find a way to document that or put that out there and say, like, hey, I'm great at managing people. I'm great at motivating people. I'm great at running numbers. I'm great at writing. I'm great at relating, whatever it is. Um, and if you don't really, if you really, truly don't know, Ask like five people that really love and respect you, your your siblings, your parents, 
you know, your best friends, whatever. I said, what am I great at? Because I'm looking to become a really great real estate investor. So, and these people you're talking to could be future investors of yours, by the way. So, so ask them what they're great at, you know, um, and look yourself, look, it's, I call it like looking yourself in the relationship mirror of one of the people you have close relationships with. And they'll tell you what you're great at and why they think you're awesome. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what personal inventory is. Great. And uh, last but not least, number four, creating a business plan. So what's one of the best models to use? Well, there's a book called The One-Page Business Plan. I don't know if you've heard that one yet, but you should check it out. Um, but that's what we use. That's the model that we've used for our uh, businesses or for our presentations and stuff like that because the one-page business plan model is takes what could be a 30, 40-page conversation on why my business is great and lots of diatribes and stuff like that, and it boils it all down to a one-page. Um, and so uh, I, I think that the one-page business plan model forces you to be super concise, super crisp, um, and really just talk about the big rocks uh, for your business. So we like the one-page business plan model, so I recommend that one. Um, and the business plan is just taking everything I just talked about and everything the book talks about in more depth and boils it down into like a one to maybe two-page thing. Okay, good. Quick summary so you know what you're talking about. In Chapter 3, so you talk about the investor's role as a deal provider. So how are systems the key to success in your business? <clears throat> well... In, in my business, I mean, system, I think in, in any business, systems or anything or everything. And so in my business, um, we have a systems that a system that we've developed that probably should not get into every system that we like the, the actual nuts and bolts of the system. But I'll just mm -hmm. say what system we have. So we have an acquisitions system. So if we find a deal, um, it goes into the acquisitions pipeline. Um, we have a financial management pipeline for my company, meaning um, just how bills get paid and how investors get paid and how this, you know, and, and we're constantly refining the process and adding more nuts and bolts to the process and saying like, you know, we really need to, you, you know, it'd be great if we added a little more meat to this or a little, like if we X, Y, Z this, you know what I'm saying? Um, and just put, and just put more detail to it or like, we're just discovering more needs for systems. And so we're kind of, um, like systems police in, in, in that way. Like, yeah, this isn't working. This could use a system. Um, and I recommend anybody that doesn't have systems in their business to try and systematize everything. Um, and, it, and it will uh, it, it will make it repeatable to where you're not having to invent the wheel every time you do something. Okay, great. Now, uh, here's one of my favorite quotes from the book. You know, it resonates with me on a personal level. Um, and here it is. So, to live a bigger life, you need to learn how to be a bigger human being. So what were you trying to teach the readers with that quote? Sure. Well, um, I've learned, I've done a lot of personal transformation work and, 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 um, and done stuff outside of real estate. They're just about, you know, personal transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have learned that the condition of your life is, is, is immediate reflection of your inner view of yourself and your view of your net worth and, the, and your view of, of who you are. I mean, so it, it's, it's an exact mirror. And so I, I think that, and, and it's, it's just, it, it's a view, it, it's a reflection of your limitations and a reflection of your blind spots and um, the things you haven't cleaned up yet in your life and, and just uh, your work on yourself is a reflection of where you're at. Um, and there's people that don't want to face that, that don't they want to blame the condition of their life or the fact that they're here and they want to be here on others. And that's very comfortable to be like, oh, it's my mother's fault or it's my father's fault or it's the fault of that guy that stole from me or whatever. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all very convenient to do that. But it's much more difficult to look yourself in the mirror and say, I own these things because of X, Y, Z. And I'm going to elevate my life by digging in and, and you know, working on myself first. 
And it's I've only found elevation in my life by um, by elevating myself first. Uh, and it's just that that's just through firsthand experience and also through learning a lot um, from others that have that have you know achieved success on their own. So that that's what I mean by ele- you elevate you, and that brings your life up too. Mm-hmm. That's very foundational. I love that, you know, starting with that base and becoming a strong person. So when you are thrown a curveball, you you can handle it and you can always revert back to, you know, what your core philosophy is. Yep. Um, And then you have uh, in the book, you talk about the deal provider investment vehicles and you have three keys to success. Um, And the first one is under promise and over deliver. So what are you trying to, you know, when you go into a deal, um, what does that look like to you? Sure. Um, what, what, when, when you're when you're trying when you're presenting something to an investor, understand that deal to a cash provider. Understand that they don't know as much as you do about the deal, and it's not your job to completely make them a real estate expert as you are. It's your job to just you know set up some fine, some expectations and everything like that. So I I firmly believe in under promising and over delivering when I can. Um, I also don't want to completely undersell the project to where it doesn't sound attractive anymore. Um, but you do want to just set up conservative expectations and then I work my tail off to blow those out of the water, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, it's setting up, yeah, you, you gotta, you don't want to, because the, the, the other option to under promising and over delivering is over promising and under delivering. Right. And, and <laughs> one, um, doesn't, uh, one doesn't sound as inspiring, does it? I mean, cause it, it's very easy to over promise and under deliver if you're a talker like I am. And if you're a good salesman, <laughs> like I am, you know, um, yep. and so I, I also know firsthand, that that when I first got started, under promising and or you know over promising and under delivering um, is very easy to do. And so by holding myself in check on yeah, what yeah. I tell people I'm going to do is is the only way that I can I can truly outperform their expectations. And that's an easy way to get people to invest with you again is if you over if you you overdo what you tell them you're going to do in in the long term. Like I've yeah. had projects that didn't return very well in the first year or something like that, but. I was tenacious about it and I stayed on the project and I pushed, um, you know, the property manager or pushed whatever it was, was making it fall short. And I eventually brought it back around. And so there's going to be slow periods and there's going to be times where in, on, on a microscopic level where you're not meeting expectations. But if you keep pushing and work your, and work your way up and, and stay on it, then you will eventually outperform your outperform investors' expectations if you're tenacious about that, you know, about, about doing it. Key number two, so communication is everything. How do you like to communicate with your investors? Um, I will sometimes just pick up the phone and call them. Uh, I will, we have a monthly newsletter uh, that we, you know, if I need to just run something by an investor verbally, I'll just give them a call. Uh, it's hard to do given the amount of investors we've built our way up to. So it's hard to stay in, in, in like, you know, phone contact with all of them. But yeah. an easy way to stay in contact with as many investors as you got, no matter how many you have, is with a newsletter or with email communications. So we do that. Uh, we send out a monthly newsletter to all of our investor database, and just this is what we're doing. This is where this is. This is where that is. This is this project. This is that project. So yeah, it's a good way to keep up with everybody through a monthly newsletter. And then we just put whatever is exciting and new in the in our business in that newsletter. Yeah. And how much time do you think it takes you to put together that newsletter each month? Maybe an hour a month. Okay. Nice. I mean, that's to assembly. That that's to assembly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I shoot. So I, I'll shoot a YouTube video for my YouTube page, and I'll pump it out on the YouTube page. So that's some fodder for that. 
and then I'll yeah. take it and repackage it and put it in the newsletter, knowing that when I shot the video, it was going to go in the newsletter the whole time. Um, okay. and, and so I collect, I'm constantly collecting data when I'm out in the field, when I'm looking at properties, whatever it is, and that data goes into my archives. And then when I do the newsletter, it's like, hey, I was that at that project. Let me pump some of those pictures in and give a quick write-up. So it's really a summary of, of things I've touched during the month. Um, and everything like that or projects I've been on during the month, but actually the assemblage of it is, is less than an hour. Yeah. Awesome. Now, number three, fall in love with this business. So why do you love real estate? Well, I love real estate. Well, the reason why the other option is, is if you don't fall in love with this business, cause th this business can be very unforgiving sometimes. And, and it's, it's not all sunshine and, uh, cash and checks and everything like that. There's <laughs> the hard decisions and, you know, picking yourself back up and dusting yourself off in this business. So, um, I, I firmly believe that you have to love this business to get through it or it will eat you up. Um, that's, that's the real reason why you got to fall in love with this business. Um, but I love the business because it produces time for me because it allows me to make a big impact on people's lives in, in their, in where they live, in their financial well-being, in where they work. This just real estate touches a lot of people's lives in different levels, which is why the mantra for my company is to transform lives through real estate. Um, in that because we want to make a difference, we want to make an impact as a company, uh, and as humans, Liz and I do, my wife, um, in that. So that's why I love this business is it's gonna, it, it enables me to make a difference on a broad enough scope, um, in, in on, a, on a lot of different levels, yeah. Now, um, you talked about you know the cash provider and, and how do you know if you're going to be a good fit in the book, and and I love that. So, uh, you identify two qualities above all else in chapter four so, integrity and trust. So, how do you build these through your relationships? Mm. Um, well, <laughs> integrity, you just really, you know, do what it is that you say you're going to do, uh, mm -hmm. which is maybe a novel concept to folks. Um, <laughs> it's the opposite of, of it, it is, you know, integrity really is what's behind that of promising and over delivering, um, because it, it's just staying on it and in it. Cause if I gave somebody my word, I'm going to get them their return or get them their money back, or um, I'm going to, um, make a project work, then that's integrity. Yeah. All right. So, uh, moving on to chapter five. So, uh, you talk about finding cash providers. We talked about, you know, how to build integrity, how to build the trust. So where's a good place. And it's not like I'm talking about going to a grocery store, finding a cash provider. Um, so, you know, where do we find these people and how do we take it to the next level? Hey, could you direct me to the cash provider? Oh, please. Like, <laughs> and then I'm, you know, it's aisle two. There you go. Yeah. Um, there you go. So I, I, you find them in your own personal network by talking to everyone about what you do um, and by broadcasting the fact that you're a real estate investor and you're looking for partners to help them to build their wealth while you build your business. Um, that's a simple way. The book goes way into more detail on it, but um, the, the simplest way to do it is to be a, a beacon of real estate investing in your community and local people that know and like and trust you are going to come to you. And that's, that's the way you find them. Great. Now you summarized chapter five at the end in one sentence and, and you said, put one foot in front of the other. Now, why is it important to run a marathon instead of a sprint? Well, this business is a marathon. This isn't a flash in the pan. You know, even the, like as much as the run to the back of the room gurus would love to tell you, um, you will not, you will most likely not be a millionaire next month, next week, um, tomorrow, or even next year, uh, because of real estate, but it'll, you know, if you run the marathon and, and get into this business long-term, it will absolutely create long-term wealth and create time and create everything that you want from this business. If you stay in it, um, mm -hmm. in that, but, but people, th this is not a, uh, flash in the pan get wealthy overnight, get rich quick as much as 
people try and paint it that way. It's not. Um, not that not from anyone I've ever seen in this business is this a, is this a get rich quick business. Um, this is a work your ass off and get rich eventually. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. and that's that's the marathon. Uh, so that's why I think that that's why I think that it's so important to just put one foot in front of the other and progress and do a little better the next day and build and build and build. But and then, but then you look back over like a year or two, like, oh man, look what I just did. You know. Oh, it's some great wisdom because, like you said, you, you hear that a lot, and oftentimes, you know, that's the ultimate goal is that financial freedom. And and if you just, you know, put one foot in front of you, that, that that's amazing advice. It's so simple, but you know, I, I got to write that down, keep that right on my desk. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear it. You know, yep. this, you yeah. can write down, work your ass off, and get rich eventually, kind of thing. Right under that one, subline. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Love it. Um, so turning some potential into reality chapter six, I love the introspective approach that you took with this chapter. A lot goes to finding our personality strengths and pointing out our blind spots. So how can we become crystal clear on our weakness? I, well, I think it's a matter of really looking again, that part about looking yourself in the mirror again and looking at yourself in the mirror and deciding what you're great at, but also deciding what you suck at, you know, be like, Oh man, I'm really just not the best at running the numbers on my business. And I had to own that. Like, you know, I'm not the best um, financial analyst or not the best with details. I'm not. And I just need to be okay giving those things away to others that are great at that. Um, mm -hmm. And my buddy Brandon Turner gave me something a while ago. He was like, if you look at your business and determine some things that you're awful at and can't do, if you turn that around, there are people in the world that are great at those things that you could pay that would feed their family doing things that you are awful at doing. You know, um, that's inspiring. It's like, man, I yeah. can like not have to do something and build a business that's big enough that I could pay somebody to do what I'm not great at and they could feed their family, keep their lights on, whatever, for doing something that I hate. That sounds amazing. And they love it. You know, they love doing that thing that they're doing, you know? Yeah. So yeah. what's your favorite position that you've hired out that's helped you the most in your business? My books. Okay. Running my books. Absolutely. I hate it, yeah. uh, but I love running. I love looking at the numbers. And when they're done, but compartmentalizing money and putting this over here and it requires way more attention to detail and way more patience than I got. Um, and, uh, and, and that's so, so, so that was my first hire was a bookkeeper. Yeah. So. Great. Okay. Some good advice. Now, the mm -hmm. one thing that potential cap, uh, investors care about the most was protection of their money. So what are some of the most common questions that, you know, an investor might ask when you're, you know, talking about, you know, potentially investing? It's not the question you think. It's not what kind of return. What's my rate of return going to be? What's your internal rate of return? What's the cash flow? What's this? What's that? Those are all things investors think that it, that cash cash providers want to talk about. Cash providers, if they know nothing about real estate, want to talk about how's my money going to be protected? Can I trust you? Uh, when am I going to get my money back? Um, explain to me the nuts and bolts of where my money's going to be and when I'm going to get it um, and everything like that. So that is what people really want to know. Interesting. So do you have any savvy real estate investors that, uh, you know, obviously ask a different set of questions? Um, sure. Yeah. What's the number one question they typically ask, you know, right off the bat? Uh, they want to know what's the rate of return, how much money, but they think their their biggest question always is how much money you're putting in, you know? Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They always want to know that. And if you're not going to put any money in, you need to own that, man. Not like, I'm not going to put anything. I'm going to rely yep. on all your money. Yeah, you could, you, there's a way to flip that. You know, and, and that's yep. like, well, I might not put in any cash, but I'm going to put in 30 hours a week of work and I'm going to put in 
um, my personal guarantee on the bank loan that we're going to take on the property, and I'm going to put down my entire reputation. It's taken me 13 years of investing in real estate to build. I'm going to put that on the line. Those three, those things. Yes, I may not put in dollars. That's on you as the cash provider. I'm going to put in all that other stuff: my reputation, my credit, my um, my labor, my work ethic, my all the resources I've built as a company, and and the opportunity to completely fold my company up if this thing doesn't work. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and to kind of put my absolute whatever on the line um, that uh, that my reputation will be kicked if I if this deal doesn't work. That's what I'll put in. How about that? You know, it. it's it's perhaps more valuable than the dollars. You know, if you if you say it that way. But people yeah. that the syndicators don't have the perhaps don't have the cojones to put it that way. Um, I've been learning to do that because I've been like, no, I'm not going to put in any money, and it doesn't go too well when you say that. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna skip this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. next question. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, I'll pass so, on that one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh. Aisle three, right next to cash right. batteries. Yep. Right. 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 Um, yep. <laughs> so you know, seven and eight chapters. I, I love this. You you talk about structuring some of the private loans and, and the equity deals and going into nuts and bolts because uh, you know when you're first starting out, it's 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 kind of daunting. There's there's not a lot of educational books out there that have that teach you how to structure um and you you start you know you know the chapter you know designing a terms of loan private loan pitfalls and, and talking about a win win scenario for the deal provider and cash provider so um chapter eight gets run right into nuts and bolts of structuring private equity deals so what are some reasons that deal providers should consider giving up equity in a deal well that's the only way that uh, that they're going to be able to do bigger deals, right? Like you can do small deals with debt. Um, I don't recommend um, – in the book, I give a perfect example of let's say – like I did – I ran two scenarios. Here's a dilapidated apartment building that needs a bunch of work. You remember this section, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, you, here's a dilapidated apartment building that needs a bunch of work. Here's what it looks like if you bring in equity investors. Here's what, look, what it looks like if you just borrow all the money from a private lender. The deal could absolutely, the deal would absolutely kick your butt as a private lender. Um, if you ran it as a private lender scenario, um, if you ran it as an equity investor scenario, it'll make it makes everybody a ton of money, and it's the same deal, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like this is the project. You could run it one way with with private loans, or the other way with equity. Um, what's great about equity is equity investors don't necessarily require a monthly payment like a loan like a loan provider will, and they can play the long game better than debt providers will. Um, and so in that scenario, the deal made a bunch of money for everybody in exchange for them waiting a year for you to renovate it, get the rents up, do reno, and then you refinance it and you give them all their money back. What's great, Scott, is in the book there is an example um, that I believe, if you recall, it's in, it's in Chapter 7, we talk about it's the same deal. It's a apartment building deal that's a little dilapidated and needs some work. I run one scenario to say, okay, what if you put a private lender on that deal? And what if you put private equity on the deal? Um, it just private equity in general works on a longer term project. You're trying to create real value. You have a big bump in value and, you're and then you refinance to reap some of that value back, right? Um, and so uh, that scenario is a great example of why private equity, um, because you might have to give a little bit away in exchange for investors waiting a little bit longer to get their money back, but then you can create big returns for them if they're willing to wait a bit. Okay. Now, you, I love what you said in the book. It kind of removes that glass ceiling. So what is that glass ceiling? Is it using mostly debt and then that equity just allows you to play at that larger level? 
Yeah, you can't you can't do bigger deals. I mean, you're, you're probably not going to go out and buy a uh, hundred unit apartment building or a three million dollar strip center or a self storage center or whatever it is um, on on just private loans. You need to figure out how to structure an equity deal and bring people in as owners on that. Um, and, and I would challenge you to find an investor, uh, like a big real estate investor that's got thousands of units or whatever, or is at the you know at beyond that glass ceiling and is into into um, the next level of real estate that has not given away some equity. You know, or has not sold equity on deals or brought in, you know, passive investors and projects. Um, if you want to play small, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, you can do all debt deals and continue to own 100% of the portfolio, but you're never going to make it to the next level of bigger, larger projects. And it's the, up to the investor on whether they want to go slow and steady or whether they want to get into bigger projects. Yeah. Um, and I wish we could talk more about chapter eight. That was 28 pages full of great content and knowledge. I mean, that chapter blew it out of the park, man. It, it was good Thank stuff. You. Yep. Um, and, you know, he, here we are at the last chapter. So, so move on a little bit. The management, exiting, and beyond. And I want to really talk about your ability to recognize things that are important or not important, along with urgent or not urgent. And, and here's a quote that I underlined and circled in the book. It said, nothing is wrong with these things, but if we spend our whole day working on things that are urgent but not important, nothing important gets done. So how do you cut through that clutter to do things that are important but not urgent? Yeah, I mean, and I should give a shout out right now to the seven habits of highly effective people because that's where that came from, um, and everything like that. And this is that's all that's so that you and I don't get sued, uh, but also, <laughs> so, but, that, but that's also because that book is chock full of great information and, and everything like that. Um, but uh, but the way that I handle just getting the important stuff done is I take um, I plan out my year. And then I take that year plan and I plan out my, I, I like reflect on that and say, okay, I'm going to plan out my week. And I put my big rocks in first. You know, another highly, you know, habits of highly effective people thing uh, is I, I put the big rocks in first, meaning like I plan out my week saying, I'm going to make sure that I do these things. And then everything else, the reactionary stuff will happen beyond it. And I think it's also just knowing that being proactive is a choice. Being reactive is a necessity. There's things that are going to show up that I'm going to have to do because it's just I got to be in response mode sometimes. But most and a lot of business owners find themselves 100% response mode all the time, and they don't they they don't um, you know defend their calendar as much as they should. And so I tend to chunk my calendar out, and I have a couple of reactionary days that are just responding to requests from me, and then I have days where I just unplug and I do only proactive activity. Um, and that so that that's that's why you and I are speaking right now on a Tuesday because Tuesday is my reaction days. Um, but uh, but my proactive days are Wednesday and uh, and uh, Friday. So <laughs> really okay. So do you yeah, is you do blocking off all Wednesday and Friday? You cannot reach me on Wednesday. Those are that's when I'm out walking my jobs, blocking myself into a Starbucks and turning my phone off. Um, or doing what I want to do to advance my business. And that might mean evaluating a deal. That might mean just whatever it looks like, or it might mean just getting myself caught up, you know, and, and just doing like a lot of the reactionary stuff that's been flowing over and over and over, um, like getting back to people on email. A lot of people mm -hmm. suck at that. But I, I want to just like, like empty out my inbox a couple times a week. Um, so I might take some of my Wednesday to do it if I choose to. But Wednesday and Friday are my days, and those are blank calendars. You cannot meet with me those days because those are the days that I'm going to get caught up unless I choose to. Like I'm having coffee with a banker tomorrow about potentially doing more business with that bank. 
that's worth a Wednesday. That's worth Wednesday lunch, especially he's going to yep. buy lunch. So no real problem. I'll let him buy me lunch. <laughs> yep. um, but I get to choose that. If I'm in reaction time, I don't get to put that anywhere. You know, um, that's that's business growth stuff. Yeah. That's beautiful. So investor relations are one of those tasks. Um, how do you use an organized system to handle prospective investors and keep in touch with current cash providers? Yeah, we use Podio and you can use whatever you want, but Podio is what we found is a good system that that, that has a natural, um, and, and we, we looked at Pipedrive and we even looked at paying for Salesforce, which is like a jacked up CRM system and stuff like that. Um, but we look at as investors as potential clients. And so it's almost like a it's, it's CRM, you know, it, it's like a sales, it, it's like a sales protocol that you have to take on. Um, and then you got to keep them happy once they're in and, you know, keep communications up and stuff like that. So when people approach us, um, they fill out an investor qualification form that, that vets them to make sure that they are qualified to invest with us. And that, you know, is an SEC box you got to check. Um, and so we do that and then I schedule a call with them, go through their goals and I talk about what they want for wealth building and stuff like that. Then I get into talking about what we do and then they go into Podio and Podio dumps them into our, um, our, our CRM our, our database for the newsletter. So then you automatically get the newsletter once they've been vetted and qualified as a, as a prospective investor. And then when I have a deal show up, I can filter through Podio and I'll look, okay, let me find who's looking for equity deals. Cause I can check off boxes in Podio to say that is you know, Joe Smith is a potential equity investor. He told me that he has roughly 200000 He's looking to put to work in real estate um, through his IRA. So bottom line, you can use systems like Podio or a CRM to quickly filter through your investor database. And it might be hard for your listeners to, to like relate to this, but this thing builds up quick. And so you might start out with like five investors that want to work with you. But um, pretty quickly, like we have our investor database is like, Three, around 300 qualified people that have already talked to me. We know how much money they have. We know what they can put into. We what they can put to work. Um, and that's so when it gets to be that big. Like I was running this thing originally on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, like of my investors. Then it got to be so unwielding. Was like, well, what does that guy want to do? I have to call him up. Say, hey, I, you know, we talked a year ago about investing in real estate. Are you still interested? No, no, no. It, 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 the, the CRM stays in contact and if they take themselves off the newsletter eventually then i see it okay they're not interested anymore bye-bye you know Uh, so anyway that's why the crms are awesome in in managing an investor database great using systems um so Mm -hmm. what is from some of your favorite daily and weekly actions that lead to the biggest payoffs well planning my week's a good one um in that as i said uh you know like just we talked about it earlier uh that probably leads to the biggest the biggest payoff Chunking out my time, and then also I didn't mention this, but the, I do Tuesday, Wednesdays, or Tuesdays and Thursdays are my reaction days. Wednesdays and Fridays are my uh, proactive days. Monday is my manager day. So Monday is where I either have a video call or a face-to-face with anyone that manages anything for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's where I just set goals with them and what are we gonna do? Where's this? Where's that? So that's more of like a like um like a just kind of just touching base on goals and touching base on productivity and kind of being the motivator that I need to do and just um, manage the people that are managing stuff for me um, and everything like that. So that's, that, that's what I do on Monday. So really compartmentalizing my time is I think yeah. is the, is the best benefit. Well, I love that. Cause at first when, you know, moving over to a full entrepreneur, I, I felt that struggle in those poles of, of everything and everything was just chaos, but you gotta compartmentalize just, it. Yeah, no, that's, that's an amazing tip. 
you know, um, in that last chapter, that was another great chapter, you know, and, and on page 179, you talk about doing whatever it takes. And you said that the one of the core secrets to being successful is the desire to keep pushing and not quit. So how do we get through the hard times? Um, you got to have you got to be positive. You got to have a positive attitude, um, because, again, during hard times, you can very easily go down the rabbit hole of self-hate and self-deprecation and depression and everything like that. And I've been there. man. I've done that. I've been to the bottom of that. And I, and I know that that's not a fun place to be. So you're better off, um, you know, staying positive, finding the silver lining, finding the, you gotta be, a, they gotta be, you gotta be the biggest optimist ever. Um, and everything like that to get through, uh, tough times and to try and find the angle, find the out, find the way that through that with continued integrity, you can work your way out of a, a down spot or out of a struggle or out of a, out of a rough patch or whatever it is. Um, that's what it looks like to, to do whatever it takes and also to kind of dust yourself off and pick yourself up, uh, when, you know, when you get your teeth kicked in a little bit. Yeah. And you talk about that story where your teeth got really kicked in and, and I don't oh, want to dive into it here, but that, well, that chapter, man, wow. Three yep. quarters of a million dollars. We're still in the middle of that. But yep. I mean, we did the right thing by our investors. You know, I mean, we bought yeah. it. We, we, we had that much money stolen from us and we just, I just gave them my ownership of an of a big apartment building project um in, in exchange for covering me you know in exchange for for their equity um yep. in that. so and, and hopefully i'll be able to earn that back by recovering it through you know legal um but uh but yeah man that's the right thing that was just felt like the right thing to do and i knew that was the right thing to do and i had to cover these people and um and that so yeah i mean the, the, this this business you know can hit very hard when you get big when, when you yep. start playing with bigger zeros you know yeah. Well, I think that's a definition of integrity where we're trying to defining earlier is, is that right there. That That's the real life example. No. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'd like to. I, I think so. Yeah. You're doing right by your investors no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's 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 amazing to think that, you know, it's it, you're creating a win win situation for someone that, you know, is, is trying to get a, a great investment secured by real estate. And, you know, like you said, they could be planning for their, their kids college, you know, education, their retirement. And they're also helping build your business. To me, it's just win yeah. win all the way around. And they trust you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're doing this because they like and trust you and because they, they want to build a bigger life for themselves. And, and they don't trust Wall Street anymore, um, nor should they. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and they, and they want to find someone that they can trust that's going to do the right thing for them. And, and that's up to you as the deal provider to be that person. And so if you're willing to cut corners and willing to, um, you know, take the short, easy road and not look yourself in the mirror, then you got to get that out of the way before you start raising money for people, you know? Um, and if you're, if you got a cash provider listening to this, then make sure that that person is willing to do the right thing and, and willing to, <coughs> take it on the chin on your behalf if they have to, you know, um, and yep. then fall on their sword for you if they have to and, and put themselves behind you, um, which is what we're willing to do, you know? Yeah. Ah, well said. Um, you know, I, I love it. Before we wrap things up, uh, you want to tell the listeners where, you know, they can find out more about you, uh, what your favorite social media source is and where to pick up a copy of your book. Sure. Um, my favorite social media source is probably our YouTube page. So you're going to go to, go to youtube.com forward slash DeRosa group, and that's D-E-R-O-S-A group. Um, and they can also hear about everything that we're doing, including watch, watch some of our best videos on our YouTube page. Um, connect with my wife's podcast, which is called The Real Estate Invest Her Show, which is investing for women. Um, they can buy the book. 
They can do all that stuff on my website, which is derosagroup.com, www.derosa group.com, derosagroup.com. And all that stuff is out there. Um, and, uh, and, and what, and they can, if they want to hear more about investing with us, they can check that out too. If they want to learn from us, they can do that as well. Um, and we also, I, I should mention a segment of our company is called DeRosa gives. And that means that we take a segment of our side of profit on a deal, not investors profit, our profit, and we donate it to charity. So amazing. Uh, so we do a pretty good, uh, pretty big give back program for, for my business's income. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Matt. Um, well-written book, plenty of content that is so valuable. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, amazing. You know, I, I know it wasn't easy, so I'm, I'm glad you wrote it for others. I'll you know? say this to you, and I'll say this for everybody else that are that's listening that's already read the book. Um, and Scott, I need I need you to promise me you'll do this for me. I need whoever to go to Amazon.com. and you got to buy the book from my website or from BiggerPockets.com. Um, but you can buy it on Amazon too. But you know that's fine as well. Um, but I need more reviews on Amazon. And so whatever you thought of the book, if you loved it, great. If you didn't like it, okay, whatever. Just put what you thought because I need reviews and feedback on Amazon to continue to get excitement built around this book that we worked our tail off to create. So go to Amazon.com and look up Raising Private Capital and leave us a review um, in, in that. So please, please, please do that to, for you personally, but my, my okay. friend Scott, and also to all of, uh, all, of our, all of our folks that are listening that have read the book already, please give us a review. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, great action tip. Head right over right now. So thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate it. Cool. And that concludes our book club interview with author Matt Faircloth, who wrote the book Raising Private Capital. I learned so much through today's podcast, uh, the challenges of him writing the book and his tips to help you get past the distractions and just letting things happen. Uh, he gave us a definition of private capital, the different uses of debt and equity, his four prerequisites to raising private capital, and the keys to success in his business. And before we cut things off, I really want to leave you with this excerpt on page 85. It's his final thoughts on cash providers. And here's a direct quote from the book. There are a few things I can't stress enough when working with cash providers. I would say to treat their money as if it was your own, but it's not your money. It's theirs. You need to be extremely respectful with how you invest it. You may be willing to take risks with your own cash, but always be more cautious with theirs. Your investors most likely view you as a vehicle to reach their long-term wealth goals. They're putting their financial future in your hands. This could be their kids' college money, their retirement money, or money they plan to leave to the children as a legacy one day. Don't ever take them or their money for granted. If your investors see the respect you hold for them and their investment, you will have a lifelong partner who will get behind you again and again on your projects. And to me, that's what it's all about. I, I love that because you know you really want to help family and friends out and other investors who are looking to place their capital. And I think if you have the integrity and you have the track record and the trust built, um, it truly is a win-win situation. And I think Matt did a wonderful job outlining that in the book and educating others on that process. And that's going to wrap things up for today. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Hit subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date to the authors we're interviewing. We'll see you next time.